Hey y'all, welcome back to Love, Sweat, and Tears, Ingredients for Transformative Campus Leadership. We got something new for you today, part one of two with John Shimberry. This is the first guest we've had where we get to our time and I have so many more questions still to ask. So we turned it into part one of two. Um, the next episode that we release will be part two of this conversation. John Shimberry is incredible. He's in New Jersey. Um, he served as a principal for years, kind of moved into a director of curriculum and leadership and has been working as a consultant now for a while um, with universities in New York, um, with school systems, and really with anyone that is interested in hiring him as a coach or consultant. Um, I could not believe the depth and breadth of his knowledge and expertise. Um, I loved that when I would ask him a question, he would give, you know, kind of the theory and the why and get into, you know, whatever the, the principles, but then also like he would not finish answering the question until he gave, here are very three very specific ways that you can implement this tomorrow. Or, I mean, it was just a fantastic conversation. I knew we had to have more. Um, so please enjoy part one with John Shimberry. Um, all of the resources that he mentions will be linked in the show notes for your convenience. I hope you guys enjoy. So everyone, today I'm talking with John Shambari. He's in Jersey. He's worked in education in various roles for quite a few years. And now he's doing a lot of consulting work and training and teaching. And hopefully soon we'll get him to do some courses for responsive learning. I can't wait. I'm so excited for that. It's on the list, Beth. Tell us a little bit about yourself, about what you're doing right now and why you're here. Thanks for that, Beth, and really excited to be here with you today. So what am I doing now? Well, technically, right at this moment, I'm finishing up a lot of my consulting contracts because, as you know, June, all of our schools are going into summer mode. So most of my contracts will be on hiatus for the summer, obviously, until schools start getting busy and start ramping up for the new year come probably August. Uh, so right now is a great time to be talking with folks such as yourselves on, or such as yourself on podcasts such as this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, over the summer, I'll really be working on my branding, talking to others online and in person at conferences about how we really should be educating our students in the 21st century. Yes. I love it. Now I ask all of my guests this just cause I really like to know, um, but tell me a bit about what you were like as a student in school. What was school like for you when you were a student? <laughs> you know, I think I was a fairly good student. I know most of your guests are probably going to tell you that, you know, even that, if, even if that's not the truth, some are like, I hated school. I was terrible. <laughs> I was not a great student. I was like, one of those super GT kids that like you really have to motivate to do any like oh yes uh, I had a few yeah. of those in my class too so I agree with you and in some ways Beth they could be more of a distraction than kids who need supports right because you really have to engage students on that upper end but as for me I wouldn't say I was one of those students but I was generally like I said pretty decent student. I will say though, I was easily bored. And if you didn't capture my attention, I was definitely going to be one of the kids doodling in the back of the class. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, all my notebooks are just full of doodles and something to keep my hands busy. And um, so, you know, what was, as you kind of get older in school and you're in high school, going into like college age, what did you know that you wanted to go into education? Like kind of what was that transition like for you? Thanks for asking that question. I actually was not a natural educator. So going through school, going through high school, I was always very interested in international relations, government, politics. Uh, in fact, I think part of the reason was I had an opportunity as a high school student to be a mini exchange student. So I wasn't overseas for a year, but I was with, I stayed with a family in England for about a month. And that just hooked me. It just hooked me on, you know, having those international experiences. Yeah. And even though one might say, well, that's not that far different from the United States. True, but it was definitely my gateway to what we would call more far-flung experiences later on in my life that we could talk about. But uh, so really always interested in culture, uh, society, different ways of living. So when I left high school, I ended up going to college at Mary Washington College, which is now, I think the University of Mary Washington. And it's literally right outside DC. It's about 50 miles in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And so being close to DC, I had the opportunity to do internships at nonprofit think tanks. Uh, so I interned at that time at the Middle East Institute which was part of Johns Hopkins at that time. I think it might still be. Uh, I also interned at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And so my major ended up being international affairs. Okay. Left college, mm -hmm. went to university again for my master's in international relations and moved back to DC. And I was working now full time in nonprofit think tanks, such as the American Society of International Law. But one thing that happened when I was there, Beth, was because at the time I wasn't that much older, in fact, I might've even been younger than some of our graduate interns, particularly if they were law students at Georgetown or at Johns Hopkins. And so I was more or less put in charge of our internship program. And I was really enjoying that and I was, kind of like something you mentioned before. I was teaching adults ESL. I think you had had that experience as well. And I was really enjoying the training aspect, the facilitation aspect of my work. And at that point, a friend of mine had reminded me of her experience teaching English in Japan for a couple of years. So I ended up doing that, coming back and, and going full in on teaching and, and the rest is history. I'm sorry, that was a little long-winded. No, I love it. So where were you teaching ESL when you started doing that? Or is that what you were teaching? So when I was in the States, before I became a teacher, I was teaching adults through Fairfax County, Virginia's adult and community education program. But when I went to Japan on the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, which still exists, I highly recommend it for any college grads interested in, in having that overseas teaching experience. Uh, then I was teaching middle school students in Japan. And the way that program worked was uh, every year, every school or most schools in Japan would invite a foreign English teacher to come and support the English language instruction that the ELA teachers there were doing. So 
by no means was I, in fact, I knew very little Japanese when I went, and I'm still not very great at it. Uh, so I wasn't, you know, the main teacher. Really, our role on this program, Beth, was to show students that, yes, people speak English, and this is how you could gain more of a conversational approach to language. So how long did you do that? I did that for two years, and it, okay. it's still probably two of the best years of my life. I, I can't recommend it enough, like I said, for others that might be interested in, in having that overseas experience while still teaching. It's a great way to see if you want to be a teacher because you don't have to be a teacher on that program. I think it's the same. And it, it's also a great way to see if you thrive in foreign cultures because a lot of people can end up going to a career in international education, uh, an American school overseas, a British school overseas. So it, it's a great way to explore possibilities in education and like I was saying, international living. So what did you do when you came back to the States? Were you like, I still want to stay in teaching? Like, what was that transition back here like? Yeah, so I ended up coming back and, and trying my hand. I ended up going back and started working again at nonprofit think tanks in DC, but I did miss, I did miss that teaching. So at the time, New Jersey, where I'm from, or I'm sorry, at the time, Virginia, where I was living, did not have a very good alternate route into teaching program. Uh, you'd have to go back for a second bachelor's degree. And that didn't make sense to me. And so, and this was before the shortages we have now in education and in teaching. So I'm glad that alternate route programs like I eventually ended up participating in in New Jersey are more common now than they were even back then. Because, and not only alternate route, but grow your own programs are finally coming into, into their own. So that's what I ended up doing. I ended up moving back to New Jersey, got an emergency certification. So I was teaching in middle school during the day and then at night taking all my certification courses. And then at the end of that year, pending decent reviews. And I don't think it's changed very much since then in New Jersey you get your standard teaching licenses. And that's how I ended up becoming a, a full-fledged educator. So what was your journey like from classroom instruction? How long were you in the classroom? You know, it's funny, you know, I, I think there are different strokes for different folks. I was in, a, in the classroom for five years and I ended up switching to administration, partially not because I didn't like teaching, I love teaching. But during my teaching journey, Beth, I had an opportunity to work in a magnet program, which is, you know, a, a school program that has a central theme or, or focus to it. And so I, at the time I was teaching social studies, law and history in a law and public safety magnet high school program here in New Jersey. And because it was such a novel and new program then, I don't think magnet schools are as unique today because I think we're looking for ways to engage students in inquiry-based learning. But at the time it was still fairly new. And so because it was an innovative program and I needed to develop inquiry-based lessons, project-based learning lessons, bringing experts in from the community to work with our students, I really got a buzz, if you will, out of those community connections 
And in fact, all of our students did intern one day a week in their senior year, and they did attend the local community college. They didn't actually take their courses with me as seniors. So they got double credit. So again, a lot of initiatives that we see taking hold now were embedded in this program. Exactly, embedded in this program. And I love that. And I wanted to really explore that side of my talents, more the programming, the management of that programming, if you will. And then from there, I became an administrator. How was that kind of jump from the classroom into administration? Every place you work, there are new learning experiences, right? And I think when people make that jump from teaching to admin, there's, first of all, a benefit and a negative to making that jump in your same school because people have gotten to know you and see you as a, a full-on colleague. So that could be hard. But then making that jump as an outsider into administration or into another school could be hard too because then you have to develop trust, understanding, compassion, and people have to see you as being an asset and a help to them not somebody that's necessarily going to come in and, and want to change everything up right away. So, so I think it depends on the situation. Now, in my case, my first true admin opportunity wasn't in a traditional school system. It was actually in the New Jersey prison system. Because a lot of people don't realize if somebody who is incarcerated is under the age of 21, let's say they're over 18, but they're still under 21, but they don't have their high school diploma, they're still eligible for a free K-12 public education. And so unfortunately, and I don't think Beth, this will come as a surprise to you, there is a connection between academic attainment and success and incarceration. I'm not saying one causes the other, but there is clearly an association because many of our, our guys in, in this case could not read at a, even a middle school level. So we had a full K-12 educational program, even though those incarcerated in my facility were adults. They just happened to be young adults. And then I ended up making the switch back into more of a traditional uh, school. But again, it was still a magnet school. So that magnet, that magnet theme was always something I was very interested in and, and came back to full circle. Okay. What was it still kind of a sociology and law magnet? Yeah, not that far actually. I ended okay. up starting a high school as a principal in Newark, New Jersey, okay. uh, founded or based on American history. So yeah, not the first. Newark actually had been pioneering magnet schools for a significant number of years. In fact, many people listening to your podcast here might know of Science High in Newark and Newark Arts High had been around for a significant number of years. In fact, the, uh, the jazz singer Sarah Vaughn is a graduate from Arts High. Oh, okay. So cool. it's been around for a while. So magnet schools, I said, you know how I said before, they're somewhat new, but more common now. There have always been those, those school systems that have been progressive in their thinking at the same time too. 
a lot of our listeners here are new principals or just under-resourced principals that are isolated, that don't have the tools that they need and are looking for them. Talk to me about what your experience was like those first few years of your administration. Like I was saying before, it's very important when you are a new leader to build camaraderie amongst your staff, to develop the systems and processes that are going to allow the staff in your organization to have a say in decision-making. So while you want folks to, again, have a mechanism to give you feedback, and you really do need to take that under you know, consideration and evaluate it, and if it's good feedback to adopt it, but that's not just going to percolate itself up if you don't have the systems and practices in place. So within your first couple of years of admin, if your school doesn't already have, for example, professional learning community time embedded in the structure of the school day, if you don't have instructional coaches, your more senior educators training, and then having feedback conversations with other teachers, you need to get those systems in place, or you should get those systems in place to really start to change the culture if it needs to be changed in the first place. Uh, and if not, that the good practices that are already going on can continue in perpetuity, right? Because as a leader, I don't think it's about necessarily you and your ideas. It's about, yes, I mean, obviously you were brought into the position for a reason. You have talents that the school community wants to utilize as a leader, but it's also about how, again, you distribute that leadership so everyone has a voice, that there is equity in terms of who has a say in the school community, in terms of what makes that school community what it is. I think it's about, like I was saying before, putting the systems and processes in place and really about developing and devising clear communication channels between and among you, teachers, students, parents, and others in the community, right? So th that's where I think a new principal really needs to be spending their time. And then if they're not already an instructional leader, let's say they came up through operations as opposed through being, say, an instructional coach or an instructional AP. I really do recommend that assistant principals become experts at what good instruction is, because as you and I were talking offline about a recent Wallace Foundation report about what, you know, what makes principals successful, one of the things that they said makes principals successful is how well they develop teachers because the number one indicator of student success and student growth is teacher capabilities but how are teachers going to be capable academics capable instructors if the school leader isn't helping those teachers to become that so that's why that's the other piece that's really important for new administrators really have curriculum, instruction, and assessment at the core of every decision you make in, in schools, as much as you can. 
we all know politics plays into things, but that that academic core needs to be the academic core. So how did you do that practically? How did you, you know, no teacher likes an administrator that comes in and tells them all of the things they're doing wrong or all of the changes that you need to make. So how did you balance honoring the good things that teachers were doing with also coaching them towards growth? I think there are several things you could do there. One, as I was saying before, a new person coming in does not necessarily have to come in with the mindset of this place needs to be changed. There is a reason why we have different leaders for different situations, right? So yes, there are leaders that might be called upon to come into a role and, you know, chop heads. I hate to use that expression that maybe it's a school that's Exactly. Maybe it's a school that's in turnaround or a school that's under state control where you have run out of time to improve outcomes for your kids. That type of leader is going to be different than the type of leader that I think goes into most school situations, which is where maybe a school's doing fairly well, but could always be doing a little bit better, right? So if that's the situation you're in, which is probably more the common one, right? As a new leader coming in, I think the first, and I'm sure you've heard this from other guests and other places, you really should have a 30, 60, 90 day plan. And that first month, you really shouldn't be making any major decisions. That should really be, and I would even say into like 60 days, two months, more your exploration. You want to be talking to your staff. You want to be talking to families. You want to be talking to students about what do you feel is going well here? Yeah. What do you want to continue? Yeah. What makes this school or this district great? So it's not going in with this attitude, this is bad and I have to change everything. It's about going in with an explorational attitude with almost an underpinning that and a recognition that there are good things going on anywhere you work. Even the, the, the most chaotic environment has something somewhere that is working well that you can build on. So if you approach Beth, a situation like that, I think a community is more apt to see you as being part of the team and wanting to promote them, validate them because validation is very important. Now, to the second part of your question, but what if there really are opportunities for change, opportunities to make things better? Well, there, in, in my experience, and, and in that of my colleagues and friends in, in the field, I know that we all then look to, you know, what made us educators in the first place? And it's very hard, no matter how jaded someone might be, to say, no, you're wrong, I didn't come here to make a difference in the lives of students. Even if they're completely and totally jaded, even if they don't have as high of expectations for students as we would like to see, I do think a commonality amongst most educators is they are, are, is that they wanted to make a difference in the lives of kids. So if you could show evidence as to any change you want to make, how that's going to, or how that has actually increased student growth and achievement and tied into 
the common goal, I think, for most educators, which is student growth and achievement, that can help get people on the same page. But again, hopefully by that time, you've done your review, you've seen what's going well and what could be changed, and people trust you. So those are some strategies. I mean, there are a ton of other ways to, to, to do this. I mean, you really do need to then involve your stakeholders in the strategic plan. It, it can't just be you. It has to be everyone because they're the people that are going to actually need to execute the plan. When you're trying to identify your stakeholders or your council on campus, the people that are on your campus, the teachers, the leaders there to help you start making those decisions and forming an actual plan, what do you look for to kind of as teachers to surround yourself with to help you make these kinds of strategic plans? Yeah, I definitely look for diversity of role, right? So you definitely want a good section of your teachers. So if you're a school, obviously, if you're a middle school, sixth or eighth grade, you might want to have one teacher from each grade level on your school leadership team or, you know, a couple of teachers on your school leadership team. Let's say you're a district then maybe you have one teacher from each of the schools in your district uh, on your senior leadership team. Uh, it needs to be more, Beth, than just your teachers. You know, when I was a principal, one area of friction sometimes was definitely your academic staff and your operational staff. You know, the tensions were often office staff feeling teachers were asking them to make copies and do everything at the drop of a hat, not realizing that, you know, I was even relying on operational folks to help me with other projects. And so I think, and at the same time, an understanding from operations that, yes, there needs to be some advance notice, but things do happen too in the course of a day of teaching. So having these two groups come together, because you cannot have education in a brick and mortar building if the two parts don't work together. Right. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, the third part of that is, and they kind of straddle academics and operations. And that's your, those are your guidance counselors. Those are your so social emotional learning support staff. All the more important these days, but I think they've always should have been there, but that's your, your third core group of folks that really need to be on the table, your nurse, uh, your head of security. So those are some examples of operations folks working side by side with your educators, with your teachers, your guidance counselors. And if you could have a student on that leadership team, even if they're in a non-voting kind of capacity and some parent representation, in addition to your board, I mean, yes, most schools have a board made up of parents, but I would still have family members on various school improvement committees within the body of your school, if that makes sense. I mean, I know at our campus, it's not nearly that organized, but we're also at just a like regular old K through fifth grade public school. And we're at a, we're a title one campus. So we, you know, there's just, it's not because we're not a charter or a magnet school, there's not quite as much structure there, but man, that would be awesome to have that and to have all of those voices yeah. in there. What was that like for you working with that team? 
Uh, it depended. I mean, I think, and then I want to know what you do at your school site, not having full resources, because the reality is most places don't. So what I'm talking about is the ideal. I don't want folks to think what we're talking about is the ideal. I don't want folks to think, oh, I wish I had that, or I'll never have that because then nothing will change. Right? So I do want to go back to what you're doing in your school. But to answer your question about how you make it all work, I really think it comes down to being very clear about what the vision and the mission of the work is, helping people to understand that we're professionals and that we're coming together to solve a problem or solve an issue. I'm a big fan, Beth, of the National School Reform Faculty Protocols, which are discussion protocols for adults to engage in problem of practice conversations. Because I mentioned the word before, equity. We need to make sure that each of those people at that table has a voice, has a say. And as much as we say we're gonna allow for that, personalities are personalities, you do need an actual formal mechanism to make that more likely to happen. When I coach teams of other educators in schools, I'm also not only about using those discussion protocols, but I'm also about having a meeting agenda, rotating specific roles on that, on that meeting team. And again, having smart goals in place. What is it that you want to achieve and how are we going to measure progress along the way? So at the end of the day, we don't come back and realize we've made no progress and we lost a year. And so we've what all been you, in those you, meetings that exactly. you know, so what we you meet do? together, but there's not a clear goal or a clear purpose. And we all just say our piece and then nothing really changes or, exactly. you know, yeah. How do you handle that at your school? We have different leadership teams of teachers that meet with our administrator periodically. Um, the PTA board does a lot um, at the school. They do a lot of the communication with the parents. We have um, a staff member that's assigned to a lot of the parent communication over social media. So we're like kind of leveraging that for the first time. Our school population is 60% native Spanish speakers. And so mm. it takes a lot of time and effort to make sure that we're clearly communicating in both Spanish and English. Um, our school staff is really diverse. And so that helps a lot with, um, the language barriers that can, uh, you know, kind of crop up. Um, but I don't know how much we listen to student voices. And, you know, because it is an elementary school campus, it's, yeah. it's different, but that would just, that would be, it's a really intriguing idea to just see what students are thinking and saying, even when they're nine, 10 years old. Exactly. I actually think you're doing a lot and you remind me, I'm working <laughs> in one school with instructional coaches. They have, they're very lucky. They have a group or a PLC of instructional coaches. And so for the first time, which I think is a great move, the ELL instructor is on the team because in that school, they're 40 to 50% native Spanish speaking. And so it's important. It's important when they're that big of a subpopulation, it's really important that someone who is expert in English language learning services, have a voice on that team, impact what professional development educators are going to get. And another thing you said, I think even though you're elementary school, you could 
actually be bringing in those student voices. Maybe you won't be getting as erudite of answers, but but you know even the very youngest kids can use smiley faces or frowny faces to indicate how they feel about things. And one strategy, I didn't have success this year, but if I work with the school again next year, this we're definitely going to do the following. I want the instructional coaches to actually start shadowing a student for the length of the day. And I want them to pick students strategically. So since this particular school has a large native Spanish speaking student population, at least one of the students they shadow, and this is a K-8 school, one of the students they shadow, I want that to be an English language learner to really get the sense of what that day is like for that student, even if that student is not able to verbalize how they feel, being the adult in that room and shadowing them should give us as the adults some indication of what that what the learning experience like is for our students, even the youngest. That'd be fascinating. I want to spend some time talking about that Wallace report. You posted on LinkedIn a while ago now, um, but I really liked what you were saying and some of the things that the report kind of highlighted as what makes a principal effective. Um, so let's kind of walk through those things. I have some notes, I'm sure you do too. We've talked about instructional coaching, some, but I would love some real specific um, action items that principals can do to become effective or more effective instructional coaches? Like how can they really do that? Yes. First and foremost, they got to get into classrooms. <laughs> I mean, that sounds so trite and that sounds so simple, but when one has parents dropping in whenever they want and wanting to be seen immediately, I mean, there are, there are workarounds around that. I don't know if we'll have time to talk about that, but when you have parents dropping in, when you are dealing with a discipline matter, when you as the principal have not um, delegated or have a delegated chain of command to deal with different issues, you might get, you know, succumb, you might succumb to having to deal with those. Uh, reports, Lord knows, reporting, reporting, documenting, district meetings, all of that has a toll in terms of getting into a classroom. So I'm a big fan, Beth. I don't know if anyone else you've talked to has mentioned this. Maybe they have. I'm a big fan of the work of Paul Bamberg Santoyo. And in particular, his book called Leverage Leadership. And I could actually quote the chapter. It's chapter eight, which is all about the administrator taking a large poster board and scheduling out their week just as if they were a teacher. We give teachers schedules, administrators should have schedules. And in that schedule, if you have to meet with your superintendent at eight o'clock every morning, you put a color post-it note in that block period one in green every day of the week. So you know you're not gonna be getting into classrooms then. If you have to do a duty, you know, especially assistant principals, this is maybe more assistant principals, block that in purple, right? You can't go in classrooms then. But the more administrators do this, I think the more they'll see 
where they have blocks of time in their schedule to get into classrooms. And even if you can't get into every classroom at least once a week, try to get into a classroom at least once every other week. And then in that interim week, that's when you have your 20 minute or so feedback conversation with the educator. The educator should get a feedback conversation with you, regardless if there's a problem or if they're superb. Too often, we only have feedback conversations when quote unquote, someone's in trouble. And that only exacerbates the fear, the stress. If you get into a, exactly. If you get into a And then you as a principal, you don't want to have, like, you don't want to have those conversations. (laughs) Exactly. It's a drag. It's stressful. It's draining. And if you had these conversations throughout the week, no matter, maybe if and when you have to have a difficult conversation, it'll make it easier because you've already built up trust with that teacher and that they know that they can trust you. So that's, that's step number one with the feedback conversations. Beth, I'm also a really big fan. It came out a couple of years ago. I don't even know if they still use it, but the Carnegie foundation had great feedback protocols to use in those feedback meetings. And what I like, how do you have these conversations? Exactly. I'll send them. I'll send, I'll send a link to you. Please. Where they yes. Find that. That'd be great. Yes, uh, I'll put it in our show notes. Love it. And what I like about it is there's one script. If you as the leader need to facilitate the conversation, let's say you're working with someone who's not very self-reflective, but there's also a script in there for when the educator is self-reflective to put them in the driver's seat of that conversation. Again, you wanna hear from your staff. You want your staff to exhibit leadership. That's a true leader. The other way, if you're just giving people stuff, that's a manager, that's not a leader. That's a good distinction, yeah. Exactly, right? A leader is someone who develops leadership in others, especially in a school situation. So that's the second way to ensure that you're actually getting instructional improvement going. Because the one and done formal evaluations where you sit in a class of 45 minutes, people game that. I would game it. I gamed it. You know, when I, 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 th- I brought out all the ponies in the dog show because I knew, but that's not reality. So doing more of these informal ongoing conversations will make edu- uh, instruction better. And hopefully it'll improve your relationship with folks. Now, I'm also a big fan of the work of Kim Marshall. And he's got a great book called uh, Rethinking Supervision. Highly recommend, Beth, his weekly Marshall memo to folks. He does a weekly memo. So folks, look up Kim Marshall, sign up for that memo. I'll have a link to that also for sure. So in the book, he also recommends don't forget those impromptu learning moments. So like if you're passing a teacher in the hallway and you were in their classroom this morning, say, hey, I really liked how you did blah, blah, blah. And then make a note that you've talked to them about that because there are a lot of conversations going on in the hallway. How do we actually formalize even those a little bit or at least take data? And then that would be the other thing I would say, when you're going in and observing, do you have some kind of informal 
data collection tool. So you could see how teachers are growing in their practice. Data that you can visualize through some kind of a display, pie charts, bar graphs, that you could share with your staff every week and get their buy-in and their ideas on how to improve instruction. And again, tie that into teacher-led PLCs. So those would be, I think your original question was how to be an instructional leader as a principal, right? I know we talked about so many things, I'm, I'm you know, off the rails. But um, those are some of the ways that I would say are very effective. You have to be strategic about getting into classrooms. You have to be strategic about using data and you have to be strategic about monitoring milestones and next steps. Yeah, that's excellent. I love, I love all of the specific action items that we can actually implement. It sounds like a ton of work. It sounds like, it is. how am I going to have time for this? But something you said earlier was making sure you delegate and have leaders and are growing other people that can handle the other things that other people can handle so that you have the time. And I think that's where a lot of our administrators don't learn that in a, a, a degree program or like, you know, unless you have a fantastic mentor who is really good at that, that's not a skill that's taught. And so we're thrown in and we have all of this paperwork and all of these fires to put out and all these behavior programs and another art. And I like, there's just so much that's demanding our attention that this key part that makes a principal actually effective of instructionally coaching our teachers just gets lost. Totally agree. I'll give you a real example. So I was coaching last week, an assistant principal in an urban school system. Uh, and even in our conversation, he was interrupted about 20 times and he left for about 40 minutes. And I was scheduled to work with him for two hours. So already a big part of our time obliterated. And when he came back, I said, so what happened? Not in an accusatory, he's like, oh, a parent, a parent came in and I had to deal with the parent. And to be fair, Beth, in this particular school, they're down a couple of administrators, number one. They lack enough aids and support to deal with things. So I get that. But they really don't have a delegated chain of command, even if they had the people in place. And they haven't really put into place a plan for even dealing with parent drop-ins. So the office doesn't have a plan per se to say, well, thank you for coming, Ms. Smith. Unfortunately, Mr. Jones is in a meeting right now or he's in classrooms right now. So he can't see you right now, but he can see you either on Wednesday morning when he has office hours or Thursday afternoon when he has office hours. They don't do that because I, I pushed back on this assistant principal and I said, I understand what you're saying that this parent that came in has really been trying to help their child do better. And they've always been present and available which a lot of folks have not been. So I get why he wants to bend over backwards to help this parent. I said, and that's laudable, but you also have 350, 400 other students who are in lackluster instruction at this very moment in time. So 
because the school has some issues. And I'm sure there's there's good instruction too, but I was trying to make a point, right, Beth? Like, you know, you're not getting in to see what is actually going on in instruction. So you don't know what's good or what's not good for 400 other kids. So, and some of that, yes, is your systems. But some of that, I told the assistant principal, is retraining yourself. You don't always have to be the one to jump up and deal with it. You know, I know as principals, and I'm very similar, Beth, I think it takes a certain, or I should say it attracts a certain type of, and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this with your viewers, a type A, take command kind of individual. And that might work in a military situation, but a school situation should be a little different, right? It should be more distributive. It should be leadership at all levels, right? That's so the difference we... between a leader and a operations manager. Exactly. Like exactly. So how do we retrain even our leaders the importance of why those systems are necessary? And then when they're about to get up, sit down, let someone else deal with it. It's hard. If it's not in your nature, that's hard. But that's the only way we're as principals going to get into classrooms. Right. Delegate, well, and that delegate, was delegate. that was the second thing that the Wallace Foundation report listed was the school climate based around trust, teamwork, and engagement. Exactly. So it's not just all on the like. The, uh, clearly, a principal cannot be effective if everything falls on their shoulders. Nor, nor do you want it to, because let's face it. If you're a really, really good principal, you might be poached. You might be poached for district level roles, a different district that you've always had your eye on, an interesting new project. And one of the reasons why teachers and educators are so burnt out, I think, with initiatives and change, even if those are in their best interest and in the best interest of students, is the number of times they've lost administrators. In that same district, I'm working with another assistant principal. They have been the assistant principal under five principals. They have seen five principals come and go in a period of like 10 years. So that's one principal approximately every two years. So if you actually do care about your school community, I understand everyone needs to move on and do what's in the best interest of their families and in their career, but that doesn't mean we need to leave schools in the lurch. And if you're doing everything, you're not setting up that school for success to do things on their own. And, and that's not good because then the cycle of change, 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 keeps repeating, people get more burnt out, people leave. And that's another problem. It's how do you do as a leader, we didn't talk about this, and it's not so much reported in the report, I don't think, but the best leaders or the best school leaders are also developing their succession plan, succession, succession plan, almost right when they get there. I, I know that's, I, I hope that doesn't sound negative, but you know, how do you plan for your removal? 
And that's not something that's talked about a lot. Right. But no principal is going to be at a campus forever. Even the ones that are there for 20 years, at some point in time, they won't be. Correct. Like it is inevitable. Yeah. Correct. You know, and even looking at some of the people that I've worked with in the past, even those assistant principals that have worked for many principals, they don't necessarily have to become principal because they've shown their community that they're a leader because they've actually broken in five other leaders. So I know for a fact that assistant principal could be very easily poached for other opportunities. And so, and she's been the constant. So if they go, now I think this person has probably done a pretty good job of putting systems in place, but let's say somebody like that has it. They go, then there's a dearth of leadership and the school's back to square one as if they were a year one school and not a year 10 school, if that makes, if that makes sense. No, it's, it's good. And it's something that I, that I haven't seen or heard and it, and it values the student outcomes and the teacher outcomes and not just your personal outcomes. And I think, you know, maybe some people, but very few administrators are there for themselves. They're there for their students and their teachers. And that's an, I don't know, an interesting way, an interesting thing to think about to make sure that you're growing your campus and growing your leaders. Exactly. And let's face it. Yes, we're there for the kids, but human beings are ambitious people. And so, you know, how do you do both? I don't think we all have to be Mother Teresa. Sure. You, you can benefit your students. You can have growth and achievement and look out for your career, look out for your family's well-being at the same time. I don't think they're ex uh, mutually exclusive. And getting back to the report, one way to do that is to, again, not only get into classrooms like that report said, but the other thing that report said, in addition to what you were saying about building climate, was facilitating collaboration. So when I was talking about PLCs and teacher meeting structures, that's the way you could set up your school for success, whether you're there for the next 30 years or the next three. Let's talk about how to do PLCs well, because it's such a hot topic right now. <laughs> so, like when they're not done well, it's just another boring, terrible meeting yeah. to go to. And when they're done well, they can completely revolutionize your team's engagement and your student outcomes. So let's talk about how to either implement or facilitate or help our campus's PLCs function in a healthy way that actually improves student outcomes. Yeah, yeah. So again, they need to be very clearly structured. So for schools to do them well, I don't recommend doing them at the end of the day. Yeah, you can do them at the end of the day if you're giving teachers per session and giving them extra money to do it. It's really bad if you're doing them before school or after school and you're not paying educators. That's not fair. It's not fair and you're not going to get the best out of your, your folks. I would be upset. So if you're not going to pay your teachers extra to stay after school to do this, figure out a way to build in PLCs into the structure of the day. 
So just like you're developing your schedule at this time of year, I'm sure many schools right now are doing their schedules for the fall. How do you build in, exactly, how do you build in PLCs? Now, that's number one. PLCs, PLCs, excuse me, should be at least one hour once a week, at least. Better two hours once a week or every other week, no less, no less. The best is two hours every week. I would say then maybe if you want to get a block of two hours, if you can't do that, one hour a week, or then maybe a block of two hours every other week, no less, because you need time to discuss, right? So that's the second thing I would say to make PLCs work better. Third thing, because, oh, I should add, the work that needs to be done is not should not be happening at the PLCs. So for example, if teachers are bringing artifacts of student work, I don't want teachers grading that work during the PLC. They have to have that work in the buckets already. Like who got it, who almost got it, who didn't get it before they come to the meeting so they can discuss and analyze the results at the meeting. So that's why it needs to be fully structured and there needs to be time to have that analysis. So that's the second thing I think PLCs need. Third, Beth, there needs, needs to be a standard meeting agenda. I like to work with my folks around having almost like a good of the order for five minutes. Like what, what is good that is happening? Let's go around the table just to, you know, get in a good place and not a, a gripe session mode. Then what are two or three things on our agenda? No more. Let's do a problem of practice or a looking at student work artifact, uh, or read an article for implications for our work in the remaining 20, 35 minutes. What are our next steps? And when we come back and meet, what will we have accomplished, right? That's one way of having PLCs. So you actually have deliverables do, and you're tracking impact. It so, feels like a very short agenda compared yes. to what I've seen a lot of teachers try to fit into. But if you're doing it consistently every week, yeah. Yeah, because I almost look at it that way, and you're so right, right? All right, so what has been your impact cramming in all of those things in one meeting? Has almost any of the things on that meeting actually occurred? So you will actually have more impact in the long run if you limit the amount of agenda items, focus on a problem of practice consultancy, really get engaged in a discussion around that and what each of you as a teacher are going to bring back and do in your classrooms. And then let's come back and discuss how that went. And then let's, let's augment that. Let's tweak that. Let's do it again. Let's bring back the student work. I guarantee you, Beth, you'll have more of an impact and change instructional practices much more than if you just have someone reading off a laundry list of 20, 30 different items. There, you know, you could also have a school newsletter where most of that stuff could be dealt with in a newsletter or in a, in, in, on a posted on a bulletin board. It doesn't have to occur in the meetings. And data, 
it all has to be based on data. How can we teach our teachers to be better about collecting and utilizing data? Yeah, I think, and that's a really good question, but I think it's making them aware that they're collecting data all the time. So if you are having kids, you know, fill out or play clickers and an ABCD, like where they're doing ABCD, that's data, right? That's data. Who said A? Who said C? What's the correct answer? Oh, so C is the correct answer and A is wrong, but why is A wrong? Oh, I don't have to go back and teach D and B because they weren't tripped up on that. I only have to go back and reteach A. That's data. Or teachers that do an exit ticket. Tell me, answer this problem. Okay, let me collect that. All right, this student got it. That goes into the got it bucket. This student almost got it. That goes into the almost bucket. And this student didn't get it. That goes into the didn't get it bucket. And now you're not grading every last thing that's wrong on that exit ticket. Instead, what you're doing is, oh, okay, these 10 kids in my class already got this. So tomorrow I'm going to give them a project of challenge. Ah, these kids almost got it. I need to give them a graphic organizer or some or a document like an anchor chart with the steps on how to solve the problem so they can do it independently. Ah, this group of 10 didn't get it at all. So when the group that got it is working on the challenge project and the group that almost got it is working on, you know, practicing this problem using a steps document, I'm going to work more directly with the students that haven't gotten it and reteach them. So it's not you reteaching everyone again, because remember I mentioned I was the kid that was doodling in the back. That's when I would doodle in the back of the classroom. If I got it, if I didn't get it, I paid attention, right? But why force kids that don't need that direct support in that direct support? So that's one way you could collect data. Another way is just bring those exit tickets to your PLCs. And then you could collaboratively analyze them with your peers. Data is everywhere. It's not a question of getting teachers to do data or collect data. It's getting them aware that they're already collecting it and being more broad in their thinking of what data actually is. I love that. I love that a lot. Um, I can't believe that we're almost on our time here. I have so much more I want to talk to you about. Well, I'll have Happy to come back. Happy to come back. Yes. Okay, good, good. Because I have a lot more questions for you. This has been wonderful. Um, but before we go, is there any kind of last parting words that you have for our audience? Anything that you, hey, you should be doing this over the summer, or this is what I really want you to take away from this. Any Any last takeaways for us? Yeah, I definitely think, there is a value to resting. So I would, I do hope over the summer, regardless if you're a teacher an admin safety, the nurse, you do take some time to relax. You know, there are opportunities to engage in your own professional development, whether online and conferences, think about that. That's a good way to spend summer, uh, but relax, go back recharged because you're not going to do anyone any good. If you go back, with a, you know, an empty battery and just remember leadership is a journey. I know that sounds really trite and it's something I try to remind myself of all the time, 
it isn't a destination because no matter what you quote unquote fix or change, there's always something else that could be tweaked. We have different students coming through our doors every year. So it's not something, it's not an endeavor where you arrive. It's the job is the journey. And so that's where, again, those systems and processes come into place. So don't feel bad about yourself if there's still work that needs to be done in helping your students achieve and grow, because there will always be more work to do in that regard. Thank you so much, John. This has been wonderful. I can't wait to have you back. <laughs> Likewise, Beth. Glad to, glad to be here. Thanks. Bye. Bye. What did I tell you? Oh, man. Don't worry. There is more to come. I can't wait for you guys to hear the rest of our conversation that'll be released two weeks from today. All of those resources that he mentioned will be linked in our show notes. Um, so, you, you know, if you didn't catch something or if you want to go back and something sounded really interesting, I promise all the links are provided in the show notes for you. Um, as always, big thanks to Erwin Solbach, who does all of the production for this. Um, thanks to Alana Kanoy at Steel. Um, she did all of the design work and logo for us. And then, as always, this whole production um, is because of the work at Responsive Learning. Those guys just love to love on teachers and administrators and are doing everything we can, including this podcast, um, to bring more tools and resources and help and hope to those with boots on the ground and education in this country. Um, until next time, y'all have a great rest of your day.